like Photoshop or something. You can you can see them there. Uh, this this is the kind of stuff I hear every time from these people, every time. And yeah, we're not we're not going to uh, let it distract from here on out. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong, Energy Bear. I'll wait. Prove me wrong. Okay, I have a guest. Yep, she's got a guest. Uh, I think I see him in here. I'm out of here. And this should be a good one. So we'll see you tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon. Bye-bye. You got to fix my lighting. I look like I'm in the dark. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, welcome, Michael, Brother Augustine. Um, you. If you want to introduce yourself, um, I'll just try to give you a little brief introduction. Uh, Michael is um, the founder of the Brother Augustine channel on YouTube. You can find him there. He's the author of this book uh, on the Masons and their lies and Theopoetica. And um, he does some interesting stuff. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Thank you. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I don't know. You pretty much covered most of it, I think. Um, I just did a two-hour video about my political slash religious awakenings going through my whole um, life story and its various phases. But I, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit of that as time goes on. Uh, I've been Orthodox for almost three years officially. Uh, baptized for almost three years, been Christian for about four and a half years, I would say. And before that, I led a very um, crazy and interesting life, some of which I've uh, detailed in little bits and pieces in, on the Masons and their lies and elsewhere. I talk about it on my channel a lot. And um, yeah, I'm part of the, the network of the dissident right Orthodox, I suppose you could say, which is how you and I have uh, found each other. And thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Um, yeah, I, I've watched some of your videos where I think you've talked about this a little bit. I don't want to get this your story wrong, but um, you had a very interesting life, we'll say, before you uh, got uh, into the church and stuff. And um, were you a Protestant at one point? I was. I was a Wesleyan, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and I think too, that you've talked about sort of being, uh, in the occult before all of this. So do you want to maybe, um, explain what you mean by that? Like, you know, you were a crazy Satanist, right? No, I was. <laughs> you were? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, go ahead and, and talk to people if you will about that uh, and just explain how this conversion happened, because, you know, I think it's interesting. There are probably a lot more of you than you would think people who were interested in in the occult and for some reason you know whether it was like the lore of like secret knowledge or being a special boy um it seems like that it, it's that is something that happens where people just kind of get sucked into it not really knowing what it is and then um you know maybe it's not what they thought it would be well i I was in a number of groups and different um, occult paradigms, I suppose you could say. I was a member of a couple Rosicrucian organizations. Uh, I was a, oh, I got to turn my phone on silent, a member or a, an almost member of the um, Golden Dawn, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Uh, and I ended up doing some marketing for them and helping them sell memberships to their, uh, to their order at one point because I was a copywriter and internet marketer at the time. I was a Freemason for several years. Obviously, I left and wrote on the Masons and their lies. And in my own private life, I studied um, Austin Osmond Spare, talking about sigils and how to 
uh, encapsulate my will into a symbol and then activate it in various ways. And this is the goofiest thing. Uh, there used to be a site called the Joy of Satan Ministries. It's probably still around. I don't know. But I used to go to that site and do their uh, personal power meditations. And the, uh, the approach of that website was that Satan was the good guy in the scriptures because he was trying to free humanity from this oppressive God that just wanted them to never be happy and never have sex and never make money. So it's, it's like this, the typical secular mindset, but taken to an even sillier degree. And, um, the way I got out of it, it's a long and complicated story. I mean, it wasn't overnight. Certainly I had a, um, conversion experience. You could say, uh, Protestants might call it being born again. St. Simeon, the new theologian might call it the baptism of the Holy spirit, but whatever you want to call it, I had that experience where God just kind of proves to you that he's real with this overwhelming washing of grace and mercy that totally just, it's like turning your soul on, turning your heart on. Like you don't realize it was off before. And then all of a sudden there's this new dimension to your being that you didn't know was there. And it's because of God's mercy. Now, after that, I started going to a Protestant church and I didn't know anything about the Bible. Couldn't have named probably more than just Paul as far as the apostles go. I had never really knew any Christians growing up. And if I did, I never talked about it with them. So it was all very new to me. And after, and I was still a Freemason at the time when I became a Protestant, I didn't realize there was anything wrong with it. And for a while, I kind of straddled the line between Gnosticism and Christianity. I even started work on a book trying to synthesize the two. Like, uh, I think I was going to call this, what was I going to call it? Christus Hermeticum or some goofy sounding name like that. <laughs> and as time went on, as I prayed more and discerned more and understood the doctrine more, especially the Orthodox doctrine more, I realized that it was just completely incompatible. And I would have to make a hard choice of leave one and commit to the other uh, because I couldn't have one foot on both sides of the fence. And then three and a half ish years ago, I discovered Orthodoxy and became a catechumen. Um, and then I got baptized on, I think, Pentecost of. 2019, maybe I've been Orthodox for two years. I have no sense of time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. COVID makes that worse right now. Yeah. I have is. no sense of time right now either. So it's a common illness then I suppose. Um, but yeah, since then I've just, I started going to church one day and I never stopped going. And then a couple years later, here I am on, on YouTube, um, talking to people about my story and just trying to share what I've learned with, with the rest of the world. What a blessing. Yeah. I had a, a different story from you. I mean, I was raised Catholic. I went to a Catholic school, but my experiences there were kind of like, um, well, one of the priests there was a pedophile and, uh, he, he had, um, he would always like make us kiss him on the cheek and stuff. And he was just really creepy. And then uh, I guess they found out that he was a pedophile and stuff. And, um, the, the school and the church decided to tell us that he was to he was going to go back to Ireland to like take care of his sick mother and they raised money from us and to send him off and then it came out years later like that what he was doing and so that um kind of upset me for a while and I uh what just you know wasn't interested in is certainly catholicism um yeah. And, uh, so I kind of like, I mean, I still felt like I had a personal relationship with Jesus, but I stopped going to church and I was very, like, I went through a phase of like being totally against any kind of like organized religion. And then I went through this phase where like, I could like 
have my own truth or whatever. I could read all different kinds of, you know, esoteric hermetic work like you did uh, and thought I could kind of like figure out the truth myself. And um, that was probably when I was like in my early 20s. And of course, during that time, I was, you know, living in South Florida and it's crazy there. I'm sure, you know, I've been, I've and, been um, Florida, yeah. yeah, so I would like party all the time and I didn't really have anything. Um, I didn't really have anything that like I was living for, you know, and, uh, but I was still interestingly, very good friends with all the people that I went to Catholic school with. Uh, we had a small class from you know, the time you're like in kindergarten all the way up through eighth grade, it's like the same 22 kids basically. And, uh, then we ended up going to different high schools. And, um, for some reason, even though we didn't like get along when we were in school together, we all kind of kept in contact with each other. And as we kind of went through high school and then some went to college, some didn't, we just kind of all became like closer or whatever we realized like that we did, we got something special at the school that we went to, um, that our friends who went to like public schools did not get. And so I think that that probably, um, helped me out a lot. You know, uh, you, you just have like a foundation of like the Bible, even though when I was like a in Catholic school, I, I hated it. And, uh, when we had to go to church every Friday and do the, like these, you know, different things that we'd have to do, like the stations of the cross and stuff, I would be like, I don't believe in this. And, uh, <laughs> I had, um, a, our nun sister Marilyn, and she was always trying to like discipline me and stuff. And then years later, I found out that like the school was letting me go there for free because I had a single mom and, um, you know, everybody else had to pay tuition and stuff. So I, I ended up like very much appreciating this, uh, afterwards. And I kind of feel bad of like what a pain I was. I was such a bad kid. Uh, and then, you know, I find out that they were like basically letting me be there for free. So, you know, I have problems still with Catholics, but I certainly appreciate, um, being able to go to sacred heart at least. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I've met a lot of people. In fact, some of the people I know who are the most anti-Christian now are disaffected Catholics, cradle Catholics. So it doesn't seem like well, part of your experience is maybe unusual, I hope, but especially because you find a priest attracted to women. But uh, it seems like a lot of people just something about the Catholic school experience just rubs them the wrong way and they end up leaving. And then if they come back, it's usually as Protestants. So it's cool that you made it kind of all the way around that circle. Yeah, it took a long time, though, for sure. Um, and I think that for some people, they don't have like um, a one moment that they can look to to say, this is like what brought me back to Christ. I think it's like a process. Certainly for me, it was. I can think that maybe the, um, the thing that really uh, brought me back to Christ was when I got pregnant with my daughter and I was totally living like a degenerate at that time. And, um, you know, I was thinking in the bathroom one day, like when I, uh, had, I think my second pregnancy test and I was like, Oh, this is real. Like, what do I want to do with this? What does this mean? And from that time on, it's like, you know, your life is no longer your own. 
And then when my daughter was born, you just, you know, I don't know if you can really describe the experience of being a parent. No, so far I, I cannot describe that experience. <laughs> I don't know if anyone can. It's, it's, it's certainly not in words. I mean, that would probably diminish it if you tried to. Um, but you can definitely, well, I mean, at least speaking for myself, you know, you're seeing like this small part of you and uh, it kind of gives you the feeling like this is, this must be how God feels about us. The way that I love this baby, that's how he loves us. Yeah. I, well, I don't know if I'll have that experience someday, but that's uh, up to God, I suppose. I think you will. Maybe, maybe. Um, but that's sort of, um, that's my experience. And then uh, I had a friend that told me about the Orthodox church and that's how I found out about orthodoxy. Um, and I guess it just sort of seems to be in my experience, the best um, explanation for the way that the world is. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's really nothing else that is, I would say, a coherent uh, view of the entire cosmic experience. You know, it's beginning, it's ending, and then the different ways that things play out in the middle, like while we're, while we're actually here, because everything else has pretty severe holes in it. Um, St. Augustine, my patron saint, whose massive tome, City of God, I, as you can see, just started. He was a, a pagan before he was Christian. He was a Manichae. And he had a bunch of questions about Manichaeanism. And there was a very famous Manichae named Faustus of Milev. This was the world-renowned, smartest Manichae, the most brilliant guy. And when Augustine got a chance to meet him, he asked him a list of questions that he was struggling with. And the guy couldn't answer anything coherently. And so that was part of why Augustine uh, left that uh, worldview. And eventually, he didn't become Christian overnight, of course. But that was the beginning of the fraying of his um, adhering to this kind of pagan philosophy, which is, a, I don't know if you're familiar with it, it's just a very old dualistic um, God, God of good versus God of evil, two forces in the world competing. It comes from Zoroastrianism and the Indo-Aryan religions. It was kind of the yeah. final form of those. Um, which, you know, some of which Christianity would agree with, there's a good force and a bad force in the world, except we don't give them equal power uh, the way that those dualistic old religions did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. You know, I've been going to church now for a while and um, my daughter comes with me and it's just, uh, it's very special being with your child in church and i love the orthodox church and their services they're just very uh interesting and she my daughter loves the icons mm. so i think that's really cool and very special um there are of course some christians who like think that this is um idolatry or something and i think that's silly uh but i've had that argument many times you know I, the way i think about it is that um you know, Jesus came into the world and uh, he was the, um, you know, invisible God made visible. So we, we should be able to depict him. Yeah, this is actually an icon on the wall. I don't know how clearly you can see. It's a, a rug, a tapestry from the Ukraine of uh, St. Michael, the Archangel. And I don't know, you can't see the other ones behind me. But when I first became Orthodox, that was a concern of mine, you know, coming from a Protestant background. I thought it was idolatry. I thought it was graven images. 
um, you know, all those typical arguments. And it took me a while to, to really understand what I was looking at and reading about icons. And especially it's those little conversations you have with people as an inquirer at church that explains a lot of this stuff that is not really directly answered in most of the time, most of the sermons and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I just was, ex we have an inquirer right now who, um, it's one of his big stumbling blocks why he isn't becoming Orthodox is because he doesn't really understand either the veneration of saints or the icons. So I was trying to explain to him why Mary is venerated the way she is and that we Orthodox does not separate spirit from matter. You know, it's all one, one thing for us. So for us, the use of praying with tools that aid in our physical experiences of God, like things that we look at, like the icons, things that we smell, like the incense, that it's all part of our worship uh, because the spirit matter duality is part of that old pagan belief system. Um, and St. John of Damascus, I don't know if you've read um, his book on the holy images. Have you read that on the divine images? So he wrote a defense of icons. Uh, this was right around the time of the Seventh Ecumenical Council. And he makes an interesting point. He says, if you're going to refuse to pray with anything material, then you should stop praying out loud because your mouth and tongue are made of material. <laughs> That's a good argument. Yeah. I mean, it was a good enough argument that they used his book at the council. So the emperor liked it too. Or not the emperor, the uh, patriarch liked it too. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And, you know, there's a difference between like worshiping an idol and venerating an icon. These are not the same things. You're yeah. not worshiping the saints. That's not what it is. So, um, but the other thing that I think is interesting is when you become a Christian and you're very like excited about trying to like share this with other people, sometimes it can come off as, um, like rude, I don't know, maybe. Um, and so I wonder if this is like, is this being prideful, trying to convert other people? Maybe it's the way I go about it sometimes. But, um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think that for some of us, we feel like, oh, this is the ultimate truth. And I need to share it with people. And it's not, that's not necessarily the best way best attitude to have to go about it, um, perhaps. So it kind of depends who you ask. So I'm reading this book for Lent, uh, 30 Steps to Heaven, which is like a lay person's version of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by uh, St. John Climacus, which is a really difficult book for monks. And so one of the earliest steps, step three or four out of these 30, is called Exile. And in his chapter on Exile, he explains that eventually, if you want to reach you know, peak holiness, you will get to a point where you're completely anonymous to the world, where you're not even kind of going out there and doing things for God. If that can really just be you wanting material rewards using the name of Christ, like the reward of validation or a big platform, but it's hard to discern this because at the same time, if God has given you a particular talent, you can't refuse to use it because you're just too humble for that because now you're sitting in the other direction. Now you're almost turning your humility into pride, right? You want to have so much pride in your humility that you're going to refuse to speak and evangelize. But in regards to the best evangelization tool, uh, I think it's something that the modern Orthodox church could do better. Frankly, um, there are countries, I mean, I've gotten messages from people in countries. There was one that was a reformed pastor. I think he was in Sri Lanka saying, I I've been reading all this Orthodox stuff. I love Orthodox theology. I want to be a priest and there's no Orthodox church here. What should I do? So what am I supposed to tell someone like that? You know, I called the Orthodox Christian Mission, Mission Center, said, hey, there's this country with no churches. Can we do something about it? Never got back to me. So some people lean in the direction that the Orthodox witness should just be 
by our own personal holiness and kind of inviting people in towards the church when they ask about it, which does have value. And a lot of people are so turned off by the Protestant door-to-door salesman type of approach, like the soul winning approach that I think they throw the baby out with the bathwater because there are some things that I think that the Protestant zeal to evangelize and win souls for Christ is very admirable. And it's something that the Orthodox church used to do. But since the Protestant Reformation, there are some things Protestants do that I think we try so hard not to be Protestants that we've just stopped doing. Uh, but I don't think that's right because like you were saying, I think if you have the, the full truth and you've been transformed by this and it's made sense of your confusion, I mean, we should want to share that with people because if we're going to deprive other people of that, how can we say that we love our neighbor and then not do what we can to bring them to Christ? Now, that doesn't mean that if someone's not interested, you're going to like send them a new email every single day saying, hey, have you changed your mind yet? But I think you should at least try because even if it doesn't work, I mean, not to make it sound transactional, but we're, we're still going to get the reward of trying to evangelize whether the person changes their mind and converts or not. And this is actually also in, uh, I think it was in 30 steps to heaven that this was mentioned where it's part of our commandment is to uh, baptize the world in the name of the father, son, Holy spirit. Right. So I don't think you can have countries with no churches and then still say that you are having the fullness of the truth. Cause part of that truth is baptizing the world. So it's something I'd like to see more of. And I'm glad that, I mean, content creators like me and you and Cisco, and uh, we have priests doing this, Father Peter Hears, Father Josiah Trenum, Father Spirit on Bailey. It's great to see that people are um, adopting the modern methods of communication of YouTube and things of that nature to try and get the message out there because it's very fruitful. I think it's very obvious. If you ask a lot of people at church, new people at church, why are you here? It's because they heard something that some someone in this little section of the internet said, right? They watched a Josiah, Father Josiah video or they watched one of your videos or read someone's book or something. So I think we owe it to ourselves and others to at least try, uh, if that makes sense. So it's trying to find that middle ground between the door-to-door soul winning and just be silent and holy kind of off in the woods by yourself that some people um, tend to espouse. Yeah, I think it's a probably a fine line. You know, you want to bring people to Christ, but you don't want to be responsible for turning somebody off to Christ with your like overzealous, like pushiness or something. Um, And then the, the other thing that I often think about um, and that I struggle with is, should I be discussing this on my platform? You know, I typically cover like politics and stuff, but I feel like I should, you know, I have uh, this platform that God has given to me. Obviously it's not my own, like strengths and stuff and that has gotten me this it's gifts that God has given me for a reason and so I wonder maybe part of that is sharing at least my personal story and um why I have you know decided to do this um and you know I just I always feel like could this be being prideful to talk about something like that, that maybe is personal on a public platform or something. And, you know, you also wonder too about like your own feelings of self-righteousness, you know, this is, I think when people go into church and they feel like I'm on the Christian path, I'm living a good life now, I'm not the person that I was. um, That doesn't necessarily mean that you're like fully, where you should be. No, you know, well, that book that you were holding up on the Masons and their lives, when I was still an inquirer, um, I went to go meet father Josiah at his church in Riverside in California. And I hadn't published the book yet. I said, 
I wrote this book. I used to be a Freemason. I left Freemasonry and wrote this book about why Freemasonry is incompatible with the gospel. You know, how do you think I can make this most useful to the kingdom of God? And he said, well, don't publish it until you're Orthodox, until you're baptized. And so that was kind of my first act of Orthodox obedience. And I think the, the point he was making was you haven't lived this for even a single day yet. Like you write about why Masonry is not Christian. All those points were true, but I hadn't really been soaked into the Orthodox phronema yet. You know, the, the mind, the patristic phronema, the mind of the fathers. So I rewrote it a couple times, actually, first with a bunch of Orthodox stuff in there. And then when a priest in New York read it and told me I should make it a, a handbook for priests and pastors, which is the final version, that's probably the one that you have. And it's always free for priests. That's been a rule from day one for me. Any priest that wants a book can have it for free. Because Father Desire's worldview is that uh, the deeper your roots go, the better fruit you'll bear. And so there is always, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of overscrupulous about my own holiness, kind of like you are, it sounds like, where you're saying, well, is this particular act holy, or am I being prideful and self-righteous, kind of like driving yourself crazy about every little thing? Uh, I think the best you can do, at least that I've decided, is you, you do your best, and you tell your priest what you're up to, and if they bless it, then that's great, and if they tell you to slow down, you slow down. Because I don't think that we as, as lay people really have enough insight into our own spiritual state to decide whether what we're doing is prideful or not. But our priest, if they're a good priest, they've been around for you know decades doing this. They've seen hundreds or thousands of people on hundreds or thousands of different paths. Their discernment is very important. And so that's why our obedience to them, or one of the reasons uh, is why our obedience is so important, is because we want to put our our lives in their hands, like we're a child and they're the spiritual father. You know, we trust them to guide us in the right direction. So that's why on the internet, a lot of times when someone asks a question, the answer is, well, go ask your priests. We like yeah. to is that a blue Yeti that your microphone is, by the way? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Blue Yeti crew. <laughs> it's actually new. I had, I was using these little lapel microphones and then that, oh, um, way better. That broke. I just like them better because I feel weird having this thing in front of me. And they were good too for like going out and doing interviews and stuff. Um, But I like it so far. People have said that it sounds a lot better and that I sounded like I was like in a tin can before. (laughs) For 150 bucks. I mean, I've been using this one for probably six years, honestly, because I, when I was doing my internet marketing, I would record information products and voiceovers for ads, all using this thing and still going strong. I'm a big fan. Wow. Well, what would you say to people who are still um, wrapped up into things that are new age, for example, and this is probably a good segue to get into the other topic we were going to discuss tonight. What, what would you tell people who are, have these new age beliefs that do not like, they're not compatible with Christianity? Well, there's, there's different approaches you can take. And this is a good time for you to ask me this because at the request of my audience, I just watched the whole conversation between um, Jordan Peterson and Jonathan Pajot, the Orthodox iconographer. Uh, I was not overly charitable in the first half of my review because me and John have a little bit of a, a little bit of bad blood and it's hard for me to be really kind, uh, which I'm trying, especially during Lent when the devil's trying to get you to be arrogant and prideful and mean to everyone around you anyway, even more than he normally does. But the the approach that John took, and I think this is one of the two approaches, is to just explain the orthodox doctrine and hope that the other person goes, wow, that sounds great. I want to convert to that. A second approach, I'd say there are probably three. A second approach 
is to describe how you're different from your past self and how much it's helped you personally. So more of a, more of a testimonial than just an explanation, um, which I think also has value. And then the third way that's related to the second way that I thought Pajot should have done with Peterson was to ask someone who's in the, I mean, at the end of their conversation, I don't know if you listened to it, Peterson describes himself. He says, I'm the most confused man I've ever met. <laughs> so my first question is, well, then why are you selling self-help books, right? But the second part of that would have been, okay, if you are spending all your time, so for the new age people listening, if you're out there, if you are doing astrology and tarot and Kabbalah or Gaia worship or Wicca or whatnot, when you look at the fruits of your belief system in your life, are you happy? Are you stable? And are you free of your addictions and enslavements to the pleasures of the world? Has your Wiccan practice freed you from your lust? Has astrology freed you from marijuana addiction or from alcoholism? Where has this worldview led? Because the only one that really frees you from all of that is Christianity. And that's, that's just the truth from an experiential point of view. And of course, from a dogmatic point of view, these other things simply don't lead to freedom. The power that you get from those things or what feels like power. And you feel like you're in control of so much around you. But if you actually look at your life objectively, it's probably not true. I know when I was deep into masonry and Gnosticism, I mean, I was living the polyamory lifestyle. Um, uh, I was smoking weed every single day, you know, and telling people I wasn't an addict, but then privately, I really wanted to stop and I couldn't. Yeah. And so this is why we say the Holy Spirit is, is what breaks these chains. I mean, it's not, it's not, there's no magic um, combination of stars and mercury retrogrades that's going to free you from your addictions right it's a person it's god it's the holy spirit who if you give your life to him will free you from those things but you have to ask and all you really have to do is ask and, and do your best so i could have sworn i turned my phone on silent now it's buzzing at me you know what this is this is the <laughs> devil trying to stop me from evangelizing during lent <laughs> devil's using my phone as he often does away from me satan get behind me satan I um, I did not actually catch that, by the way. I could not, I can't watch um, that much of Jordan Peterson. It was, it was really hard. Uh, so I, I listened to, it's about an hour and 45 minutes, their conversation. And people kept asking me to listen to it. I listened to the first 50 minutes and I, I couldn't take anymore because it was mostly just Jordan crying and John not saying much. And so I put up this hour and a half long review where I was just really mean. And in retrospect, I, I publicly repent and confess I was not charitable, even though I was trying to be. And then people said, okay, that's not fair. You have to listen to the whole thing. And I was like, guys, I can't take more than 45-ish minutes of listening to Peterson talk. But they said, it's totally different the second half. You got to go back and finish it. So I begrudgingly went back and listened to the second half. And the second half was much better. Um, they have an interesting dynamic where... Peterson asks Pajot about orthodoxy from a student's perspective, which is rare for him because he's usually the one that everyone is worshiping as the ultimate guru. So John is in a very unique and opportune position to convert Peterson. Um, but I don't think what he's doing is effective, which is sad because if Peterson converts, I mean, think about how many people will follow him into the church. Yeah. He would be like point. as much of a modern Augustine as Roosh is, for example, 
um, who hopefully will become fully Orthodox someday. He's Armenian Orthodox. And even though he agrees with our theology, he really loves his parish and his culture. You know, it's his, it's his ethnic group, really. Uh, Peterson's platform is much, much bigger than that. And of all the people that he's led to Christianity by accident already, if he actually converts and repents of his previous teachings and says, I burned all my Carl Jung, I burned all my Nietzsche, and I just read the Bible now and the church fathers, I mean, I will be the world's number one Jordan Peterson shill if and when that <laughs> happens. But until then, he's real tough to listen to. I know. I have a quick question before we maybe venture off to a different topic. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, based on, you know, your experience with both sides of things, is it, you, are you finding that, um, the iconography of the different things, especially in particular, my question would be to Freemasonry or, you know, Kabbalah or other things like that. And their their uh, kind of idolatry of like, you know, tree of life stuff for different types of chakra things or, you know, things like that. Um, does that, is there anything that's in the, within those systems that are actually within like, like have some purpose, but have been perverted? Oh yeah. Or do you, or do you categorize it completely as just, just out the, out, uh, to just throw it all out? Well, Satan's best way of tricking people is to include some truth in what he's saying, because if it were completely untrue, no one would listen. So Freemasonry, for example, in the first three degrees are what's called the Blue Lodge, which is entered apprentice, um, fellow craft, and master mason. All the morality and ethics they teach are perfectly Christian. You know, it's the cardinal virtues, temperance, and fortitude, and I think prudence and justice. I might have gotten some of those mistaken. I think there's four or seven cardinal virtues. It's all about helping, helping out your fellow man and stuff like this. So they draw you in by saying that we're just here to make good men better. And that's where it stops for most people. But as I explain in depth in the book, Freemasonry was designed in multiple layers where it's really meant to weed out people that don't understand what they're looking at from people who do. And the people who don't understand stay at that level where it's all about bettering yourself as a man. You know, you get to put on a suit and hang out with the boys a couple times a week, not so much anymore, not with the Corona stuff. Um, but they separate into what's called the mundane and the adepts. This is what Albert Pike, who basically redesigned the whole Scottish Rite, separated Masons into two classes. And he said that the mundane Masons deserved to be misled. So they give them fake explanations of the symbols and what they're looking at. Whereas the adepts or those with the proclivity for the occult, let's say, would understand that the dot in the circle is an alchemical thing, right? It's not just about keeping your behavior within due bounds, which is what they tell Masons that symbol is. But someone who's studied the occult understands that they're looking at something significantly more serious than just a little ethical teaching. If you look at the actual layout of a Masonic degree, it's meant it's like a shadow version of the Orthodox Church, which I didn't understand as a Protestant, of course, because I'd never seen an Orthodox Church. So it's liturgical, it's structured, uh, every line is the same every time for the particular degree. It's all scripted, you know, you practice your lines if you act in the degree. It's, it's a, like a little play, it's a little mini drama. It's, a, it's mystery theater, but in the real sense of it, satanic mystery theater. Um, and so there's deacons and there's a chaplain and you worship facing the East and they talk about the supreme architect of the universe. So there is a lot there that if you don't understand how Luciferian the core of Masonry is, would not rub most people the wrong way ethically. Like if they were marching around uh, statues of Baphomet, people would probably, you know, that would turn away a lot of the Christians because a lot of Masons are Christian. I even initiated the Catholic at one point and they're really not supposed to be there. I know there are um, 
Orthodox Masons, unfortunately. Um, the Freemason of Constantinople in the 1920s, Meletius IV, who started GoArch, which is the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese in America, he was a Freemason and not a secret one. I mean, he's featured in one of their newspapers or magazines. And so there was a guy whose name I'm forgetting in Greece, a Greek Orthodox um, theologian who wrote a lot against Masonry because so many Orthodox Christians were Masons. And so I saw there was nothing like that in America. So I just kind of tried to do that. Uh, but the short answer to your question is, especially in the first three degrees, there's nothing too repulsive except for maybe in the third degree, which is like a baptism, like an inverted baptism where there's a, it's a ritual involving death. And right. Well, about, about that, um, I'm, I'm, I'm very versed in this, but most some of our audience is kind of scattered in their, in their, their knowledge of that. Mm. Um, as far as Hiram Biff and that particular uh, thing goes, I mean, what, what's your take on that between the, do you, I mean, obviously I, from what I'm getting from what you're saying is that that was meant to just be in, in the, uh, not the adults, but the, I'm sorry, what'd you say? Which, what, what, the mundane ones? Yes. The mundane, they, they take it as it's an allegory, but you're saying, but potentially the adepts may have taken it a different way. Well, it's a satanic baptism. I mean, there were mystery schools in the ancient world, like the cult of Mithra that did similar sacraments to what the church was doing, uh, in terms of bread and wine, in terms of baptism and things of that nature. Um, but the death, death and resurrection was always a big part of the mystery schools of the ancient world. Uh, because it symbolized both the passing of seasons and the belief in an afterlife. And you're, you're joining yourself to something invisible is really what baptism is. The problem is if the source of that invisible thing is not God, then you're, it's almost like satanic theosis. I don't know if you're familiar with that term in the Orthodox world it's becoming one with God through grace or becoming God by grace. If you want to word it that way, uh, which I know sounds very off putting unless you've really studied a lot, but yeah, the whole allegory with Hiram Abiff, um, it, depending on who you listen to, they'll say that it's the same thing as uh, Adam Cadmon, uh, or like the primordial man, where it represents you and also the cosmic man, the macro prosopos or something like that. Um, but it's all, it's Gnosticism is what it boils down to. And so in a certain sense, you're, when you get that, that death and resurrection ritual in the third degree, in a perverted sense, it's like you're dying to the world and joining this invisible Masonic hierarchy instead of dying to the world and becoming one with Christ the way you do in a real baptism. Now, it's not any less real because what's happening to your soul is still real. You're just joining um, the wrong team, if that makes sense. That's super sure, disturbing. <laughs> it should be disturbing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that, that, yeah that's uh, yeah, very interesting. Thing. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, so for question. people that think that, you know, it's okay to mess around with this stuff. It certainly is not. And I worry for our young people that think that this stuff is cool. Yeah. Um, you know, these videos of these kids on YouTube, there are like young kids trying to do like blood rituals and stuff. And I don't think they understand what they're doing. Um, yeah, and, and Hollywood, our culture promotes it as cool and fun and harmless. Like I've seen billboards for Sabrina, the teenage witch, where they're making black magic into just, Oh, something cool and kind of rebellious uh, because Satan is a liar, right? He's the father of lies. And if you start doing this stuff, slowly you open your soul up to all. And even with tarot cards and all this stuff, you're opening the door to spirits that hate you. You know, they'll present it as fun. I mean, the Bible says Satan transforms into an angel of light, right? 
he appears as something fun and good and holy, uh, but he hates you and wants to kill your soul. And there used to be laws against doing all this stuff in this country, of course. Back in the, I think, 50s, the Catholics had the, I think it was called the League of Decent. Hmm. Catholics in America not to go see certain movies and deprive Hollywood of money. So Hollywood had to keep themselves on a leash to some extent if they didn't want to lose all that Catholic revenue. Now, of course, that's just completely gone, unfortunately. Yeah. Definitely. And now we have um, pornography everywhere, uh, which to me is like trafficking and rape on camera, you know. The devil's iconography is how one priest put it. Yeah, (laughs) I think that's very true. And, you know, I think um, as a nation, we used to be a Christian nation. Um, I kind of, you know, I don't really agree with the Judeo-Christian terms that are being used now. Um, I think we were a Christian nation, and uh, we very much have strayed from that. And I think that we're going to, we will pay for these sins. Our country is covered in the blood of aborted babies And uh, until we fully repent for this, um, as we should, we're going to pay for it. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the state of our country, uh, we're being, we're being chastised for our, for our mistakes. And, you know, I don't know if you, if you know this, but I grew up Jewish um, long before I became Christian. And I also agree that Judeo-Christian is not a a meaningful term Uh, there. And father Josiah has even talked about this in, in, on, he was either a video or a podcast or something where Judeo values or Jewish values are one thing. Christian values are another thing. Now, if you're talking about what's called the Torah, true Jews, the ones that mm-hmm. reject the Talmud and reject the Kabbalah, um, even in Israel, there are Haredi Jews who are against Zionism, believe it or not, hmm. even though they live in the country, those value, those morals are probably very similar to ours. But the majority of the world's Jews are not trying to follow the Torah or what we call the Old Testament. Uh, And I would be surprised if most of you surveyed them believe in God, especially in this country. Most of them are what I was, which was Reformed Judaism, which is like Protestants for Judaism, except anything goes, completely anything goes, uh, which is not, not anything similar to Christian values. And this, this country was a Christian country. You're right. Uh, yeah. There's a great book called Christianity and the Constitution that Michelle Bachman was a research assistant on back when she was in college. Oh, wow. Yeah. I got to meet her uh, a couple of years ago. Actually, we had a great conversation about the United Nations and Alice Bailey and the occult foundations of it. I mean, she really kind of knows what's up there, which was cool to see. Uh, if you read Christianity and the Constitution, you'll see that the founders quoted the Bible more than any other book by a, a wide country mile or whatever that uh, term is. Um, and so they've introduced some of these terms for various reasons that, you know, since, since you said Vice Magazine is kind of stalking your channel, I may or may not want to go into at this particular moment. Yeah. Hi, David. <laughs> yeah, nice to meet you, Vice. Yeah. They don't have anything better to do. You know, I think it's very sad. And um, bills, man. yeah, I would like to pray for David, actually. And I'd like everybody to pray for David that he comes to Christ and realizes that, um, what he's doing now certainly isn't a godly thing to be doing to stalk and harass regular people for several years um, and use your powerful corporate platform to try to intimidate people is not the best thing to be doing with your time. No, but you know what? It also, to some extent validates 
Um, well, depending on what they're attacking you for, it can validate that you're on the right path. I mean, if they're attacking you for saying something that's true, uh, well, you're imitating Christ then, right? If you're being persecuted for telling the truth. Um, but it, I guess it depends on the individual and what exactly they're saying. But yeah, journalists do not have a reputation for honesty, which is unfortunate. Um, they've really brought that on themselves. They could choose to not do that if they wanted. Um, but they want to do the hall monitor culture, you know, the tattletale culture. If you're an adult that's doing that, I would ask the same question as I would say to the new age people, are you happy? You know, is this making, is this a good life that you're living by spending your time harassing people? Is that something that brings joy and peace to your life? I would imagine the answer is no. Uh, but I agree. Praying for them is, is the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that they're not very like fulfilled people. If you have, if that was your beat or your assignment, I, cause I have to imagine some of these people don't want to be doing this stuff. I have yeah. met, um, Will Summer and Jared Holt several times in person. Cause I live in the DC area. So I've gone to press conferences. I've met these people in person. And when you confront them in person, they're not very brave, we'll just say, and uh, they're quite swarmy and, oh, <laughs> hi, you know, and they don't want to be on camera. They don't want the camera turned on them. Yeah. Um, so, but they, I don't get the feeling that they particularly enjoy what they do. Well, you know what um, the Bible says, the wicked flee even when no one pursues them. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. so true. Um, Jared is... Uh... He's written about me, but we've never met. He never reached out or anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. BFF, Mr. You know, he, he's not at Right Wing Watch anymore, is he? He's now, yeah. um, where is he at now? I don't remember what it's called, but um, I think it's a Soros organization offshoot. Probably. I mean, I think you're right that these a lot of these people, I mean, I kind of, I, I can empathize with the situation. Like imagine you go to school, you spend all that money, you get a four-year degree in journalism, you get hired by one of these big name things. It's like the best day of your life. And then you find out, by the way, you're going to write hit pieces on Trump and all of his staff for the rest of your life, or else you're going to get blackballed from the industry and have to go work for some little tiny nameless outlet. That's a hard situation. And I understand the temptation of being like, well, I don't really want to do this. I'd rather report on literally anything besides this. You know, when Project Veritas did their expose on CNN, a lot of the people there didn't want to talk about Trump anymore. Right. But when Jeff Zucker says, this is what you're going to do if you want to work here, that's a, that's a tough situation to be in. And it takes a lot to, to sacrifice everything you've put your whole life's work into. Um, but still, at the end of the day, you have to take account of your own soul and you'll be held accountable for your own actions. So I'm not going to say learn to code. I'm not going to be snarky and mean during Lent, especially, <laughs> but you know, if your job is something that you find reprehensible, is it worth your soul just to pay your bills and to have your name with a blue check mark on Twitter and have people recognize you? For me, I would say no, but it, you know, it takes everyone a while to get there. Yeah. And that's why I tell people not to, um, not to harass these people. You know, I, I have a feeling I get a sense that they actually hate themselves. And so, you know, attacking them, it's not really going to serve any purpose. What you should do is pray for them because they're clearly already in pain. 
and they're suffering already because of their own life choices and because they don't have Christ in their lives and they're not doing what they want to be doing. uh, That's for sure. So, um, you know, I, I think that we, one of the things I certainly want to talk about tonight, because um, everybody always say one more thing about the journalist before we move on. Of course. I think it also shows the emptiness of the world and its rewards that people who have billions of dollars in some cases and gigantic platforms that pull the levers of culture are so shaken by random nameless people on the internet telling the truth about certain topics that they have to turn the whole hate machine on against them. And this is what it means to have your house built on sand, right? Imagine being George Soros, for example. You're one of the world's most successful investors. He's actually more successful than Warren Buffett in terms of his uh, returns on investing. He has everything that any human being could possibly want in this world. And is such a fragile person inside, so empty inside, that he spends his billions of dollars just attacking people who disagree with ideas he doesn't like. I mean, what a, what a worthless life to live that way. And then you have people like me with barely 3,000 subscribers on YouTube, and his outlets are coming after me for talking to people they don't like or saying things they don't like. It, it, it really just is incredible. It shows you how empty that whole sphere of the world is and, and how threatened they feel, like how insecure they are fundamentally, that no amount of power and money actually fulfills them. And I don't think it could be any more obvious than the viciousness with which they go after tiny little individual private citizens just for saying things that they don't like. So that's another reason to give up the world's quote unquote rewards and just put your faith in God instead. Yeah. Well said. Um, you know, we've, I've been the recipient of these people and their vicious attacks for a long time. And I've received hand delivered death threats to my house, um, you know, as a result of that. So, uh, (laughs) I don't have sympathy for them on the one hand, but then, um, because I, I think because I've met them and I've had personal interactions with these people, I, I do, I do have some sympathy for them because I really don't see them as happy, fulfilled people. So I do, um, I pray that they, uh, make the right decisions and do something better with their lives. Because on the other hand, I also think that these people like them who have been inside the machine, they could be such a good voice. You know, if they came out of this and said, look, I don't want to do this anymore. It's not fulfilling for me. I don't like attacking regular people, you know, and and making them out to be monsters when they're not, Um, you know, and they could just, uh, I think that if they did something like that, perhaps they'd feel a lot better with themselves. I'm sure they would. Is that a pinball machine behind you, by the way? Yes. Adam's family. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's actually really fun to play. You should so. challenge Jared Holt to a little pinball. Say, if I win, you can't write about me anymore. And if you <laughs> win, I'll give you an exclusive interview. We'll sit down, we'll put it on CNN or whatever. It could be a fun way to challenge the beast. 
Yeah, right. Well, and I think that he in particular perhaps doesn't want to be doing this anymore. I don't know why he left Right Wing Watch. He'd been there for a while. But, you know, you just get the sense that these aren't serious journalists. They're not doing journalism. Uh, They're doing defamation on behalf of a multinational corporation. And what they're essentially doing is anti-competitive business practices. They're attacking people who are their business competition. And if it was any other industry like construction, we don't allow these anti-competitive business practices. You know, this would be frowned upon. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I read your article about that today. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so um, it's just very sad, these people. Um, So I do pray for them. And I I hope everybody adds them to your prayer list. Really pray for people like Jared Holt, that he comes to Christ and and comes out of this because he could be a far better journalist and could contribute a lot more to society than he's doing now. I think they'd Um, be surprised by how warmly their old enemies would welcome them too, if they just apologize and, and say, Hey, I was living uh, the wrong way. I'm sorry for attacking you. Like if they say that to a Christian, we're going to forgive them. Obviously. I think that they would, it would be like a big weight off their chest, you know? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I wonder if they don't know that because they're so used to the cancel culture they create and participate in that says certain people are unredeemable or deplorable. You know, and for Christians, we don't think that way at all. We don't think anybody is beyond redemption. It doesn't matter, you know, what you've done, uh, what your past is like. Anyone can be saved. Amen. And they don't have uh, that mentality. And this is just the state of America. And it shows you how far we've gone off our path of being a Christian nation, where we now treat people as like totally disposable. And when you cancel these people from platforms, you're not, you're not actually getting rid of them. I mean, they're still here. You can't delete them from society. So oftentimes when They do this to people, it radicalizes them even more. It pisses people off and makes them more angry. And you're creating somebody that's in a situation where they have nothing left to lose. Like you've taken everything from them. Well, that's part of the purpose of free speech. It's It's not just to speak your mind because you can. Part of the purpose of free speech is also so that people can vent their anger verbally so that it doesn't become physical. It's supposed to be this this vent, you know, this pressure valve. Where okay, the the price of it is you're gonna hear things that you don't like. You're gonna hear people disagreeing with you, calling you names or whatever. The the pro is that they're gonna call you names instead of showing up at your house and hurting you, which is which is what people get pushed towards when they're told you're evil. You're not allowed to speak. Like you said, it doesn't it doesn't make them change their mind. It just radicalizes them. It makes them double down in their beliefs, and now they're even angrier. And they have no outlet for that anger. That's how you get things like uh, mass shootings and things of that nature. So, I mean, I, I get what they're trying to do is just have total dominance control over the conversation, the narrative, and it's not going to work and it's going to cause a backlash, which obviously the social engineers know. I would. Have oh, to, yeah. They have to know that. That's probably the goal, you know, pushing yeah. these people off mainstream uh, platforms and putting them into 
you know, echo chambers on alternative platforms, which is one of the things I didn't like about Parler, which I never joined because I always understood that as a Mercer backed operation. Um, and so, but I, I've seen posts from Parler and they're very much like, this is what happens when people are put into self-reinforcing echo chambers. There's no, uh, nobody that's telling them, maybe you got that wrong. Mm. It's just yeah. total confirmation bias. I didn't use Parler. I mean, I think I signed up and I, I don't think I made even a single post because I couldn't stand the user interface. I thought it was, I didn't understand what I was looking at. <laughs> and it also bothers me that it's pronounced parlor because parlay is French for the verb to speak. And so to hear everyone pronounce parlay as parlor just, it just irritates me on a, on a deep level. But I, I mean, I'm on gab. I think that's a lot better than parlor. Yeah. I Different think host so. Of problems. Uh, yeah. I've been attacked for my ethnicity more on gab probably every week than the whole rest of my life put together. <laughs> uh, but a, a couple clever retorts and they usually end up blocking me. Ironically, they call me a, four letter word that rhymes with bike. And then a few posts later, they block me, uh, which is amusing, but it's the price of free speech. Again, would I rather have them calling me names or, you know, persecuting my, my ethnicity, which are persecuting or exiling or attacking or whatever word you choose, you know, um, Jews have been kicked out of a lot of countries over time. I'd rather have them calling me names and throwing me out of the country. And because of when, when these backlashes happen, I got to be careful because I know there's people watching this conversation. Yeah. When these backlashes happen and I understand the reasons for why they do genuinely understand yeah. there's never any discernment between the innocent and the guilty. That's the big right. problem. So like during world war II, for example, the Jews in Rome is the oldest Jewish community in the entire Western world, you know, and they were in the ghettos. A lot of these Jews in Rome were in a ghetto. They didn't own anything. And during World War II, they were still stripped of what little wealth they had. They had to get the entire community's gold together to send it to Germany. And then a lot of them got sent off to camps anyway. Now, those people didn't do anything wrong. So I would rather have people calling me names on Gab than something, a situation like that, where there's no line drawn between the guilty and the innocent. It's a price yeah. of speech, but that's the, the reward of it too. Yeah, you know, I think that interestingly enough, um, I think that the controllers understand this and they want that backlash to occur. And I think in a way, I mean, and I've said this about Israel, where they they want Jewish people to feel like the only safe place they have is they have to go to Israel to be safe. And they want them all in one place. Wouldn't you think that maybe there's something suspicious about that? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm suspicious about a lot of things. I don't know if I can add any more suspicions to my list. In fact, I, yeah. I swore <laughs> off politics for Lent. Like I haven't been reading any political uh, posts or watching any videos or anything. Um, and I'm just trying to intensify my reading and my fasting and my prayer going to more services. And so far I find that's been very spiritually fruitful because, you know, this search for the truth in politics, valiant as the, zeal for truth may be if you can't do anything about it then what is the point of enraging myself there was an old greek philosopher i think it was Herod herodotus who said the worst pain a man can feel is to have insight into much and power over nothing so the fact that i'm not watching politics this week like what has that changed in reality 
nothing. I don't have any less influence now in politics than I did last week, which was next to not entirely zero. Cause you know, I'm friends with certain circles of people, but it's, uh, it hasn't made that big of a difference to the world outside, but it's made a big of a difference internally. Uh, I've been to Israel before, not as a Christian though. So they didn't bring us to any of the Christian stuff and they brought us to Kabbalah center and Jerusalem is very cool though. Very, very cool. Just you, you drive by it or you drive up to it and you see, this is the, like the most important city in the history of the world. You know um, it's really a moving experience. I would love to go back now as a Christian, see all the Christian stuff, but I have a feeling I won't be allowed to fly since I'm not going to get vaccinated. So my my time left on the fly fly list is probably not very not very long if i had to guess yeah that's pretty concerning yeah <laughs> um i'm not going to get their vaccine anyways but yeah. you know the way i think about it i work from home i don't really yeah, yeah. leave the house that much yeah. <laughs> what do i have to be i go to you know church on sundays that's pretty much the time I leave the house other than to go to the grocery store occasionally, you know? Yeah. Well, it's so. about rewriting people's genetic code, I think is the, is the goal here. Like yeah. sure you noticed the week the vaccine came out, they're like, Oh no, there's new strains now. So you need more vaccines <laughs> literally yeah. the same week. Okay. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. It's never going to end, you know, this whole lockdown thing. And I think, you know, it's probably a good thing to take a break from politics. I've had to do this myself. I don't listen to anything anymore. I, well, if I do, it's, it's not certainly not, um, overtly political. Uh, I just can't, I can't deal with that right now. And like you said, there's no point in getting worked up about it. And I just feel like after three years of constantly talking about politics every single day, um it it just wears on you and you feel like yeah. well what what am i actually accomplishing with this other well, than making myself a massive target yeah well the, i think the zeal for truth is admirable and the zeal to help and fix things is also admirable but as with most things at least within the orthodox context we don't think of the passions as fundamentally evil or as these any desire really is fundamentally evil it's just a question of aiming it in the right direction right so lust in the shadow secular sense would be a desire for fornication, right? For sex outside of marriage or many partners or whatever, but lust or just deep desire, that same passion can be transfigured for a deep desire for Christ and union with Christ, right? Cause that's what sex is. It's union, right? It's a desire for union. Okay. Well that desire in and of itself is not inherently disordered. It's how you use it. So that zeal for truth is good because Christ is the truth. And we should put all of our zeal towards finding that truth, our desire to help. Great evangelize, save the people around you if you can. Um, especially, you know, the more of this ancient political literature I read, like City of God, this 22 book, thousand page tome, you just realize that it's all kind of the same thing that's always been happening anyway. And um, there's never been a case where, oh, this happened and then war was over forever. Or, oh, then all the problems were solved. Like if you read Ecclesiastes, it just says very bluntly, it's all the same thing. There's nothing new under the sun. And so yeah. it's hard to remember that all the time when everyone around you is getting agitated about something or something that affects you directly. But, you know, in your more, at least for me, in my more sober and dispassionate moments, I'm like, oh yeah, the nations will rise, they'll fall. You'll have good Kings, bad Kings. You'll have starvation. You'll have famine. You'll have war. Then you'll also have peace and seasons of abundance. And then this will just go on and on until the second coming. And there's absolutely nothing I can do about this at all. So why don't I just not pay attention? But then, of course, you know, the next day I'm paying attention again. But at least I know that I'm wasting my time. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, and I just, you know, for people who are looking for a solution in politics, I don't think you're going to find it. Um, unfortunately, humans are flawed people. We're all sinners. And I think that uh, people who feel drawn to be politicians are particularly um, of a narcissistic bent already. Mm. And then once, of course, they get br- are drawn into this and they become politicians, they, ha- they realize they have to fundraise and do all these things to stay in power. And so very quickly, what good intentions they had um, – are just kind of go by the wayside as they're trying to fundraise and then they're campaigning all the time. And so I don't think that we're going to find a solution for these problems politically. I don't know how much, um, how do I say, nationalist history you've read, but a lot of the anti-communists from the 20th century despised political parties and the idea of politics in general. And at least one of them actually forbade the members of his own group from joining a political party. And the, the reasoning he provided was, you're not going to make politics better. Politics is just going to make you worse. And he said, when you add oil to water, it doesn't clean the oil. It just makes the water dirty, which I've always thought was a pretty cool analogy. Now I have to be careful because uh, a friend of mine is about to enter politics soon. So I don't want to yes. talk too much trash on he, it. He hasn't he, said it yet. Stuff, though. He knows what he's getting into. Have you ever seen the movie Training Day? Um, yes. With Denzel Washington. Yeah. And with Ethan yeah, Hawke. Yeah. So it's kind of similar because Ethan Hawke wants to be a narc for the right reasons, right? He wants to be a drug cop and all this stuff. And then during this day they spend together, Denzel is trying to explain to him, okay, well, you're trying to do the right thing. Well, you're going to have to get your hands dirty. This is what it takes. You're going to have to rob people and kill people and do all this stuff. And Ethan Hawke eventually says, fine, I'm just going to go back and give out tickets. Then I don't want any part of this. Right. It's kind of like politics where even if you have good intentions going in, Eventually, you're going to get to that point where they say, okay, well, if you want to do a good thing, you're going to have to do some bad things, right? Got to crack a few eggs to make an omelet. And the ultimate result of that is that you're going to end up selling your soul, even if you started with with good intentions. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that this is why, um, you know, I encourage people to, if you're, if you want to know what's going to change this country, it's not going to be politics. It's going to be Christ. Yeah. That's the answer. Yep. Yeah, I, I've long, I've long said, maybe not long said, but recently said, if you add Christ and subtract Marx, there's your formula for a healthy country. And I'm convinced that that's all it takes. You know, we have all these uh, wig nats and white nationalists saying we got to throw this race out and that race out and all this stuff. And so look, with the situation we're living in right now, where it's true, the races on the whole are not getting along particularly well, you know, if you look at all the numbers in a, in a variety of ways, mm-hmm. but that is all under the influence of groups of people who specifically agitate them against each other and try their best to remove Christ from the picture, which would say, forgive each other, treat each other with grace, treat each other with kindness. Like no one's even thinking about trying this, which is the crazy part, right? Why are we right. talking about throwing groups of people out of the country before we even try getting rid of the people who are trying to get you to fight in the first place? And bringing Christ, the great unifier, into the picture. You know, I would much rather have some kind of, I don't want to say theocracy necessarily, uh, but more in that direction, certainly, than any kind of racial nationalism. Yeah, I agree. I will say I'm only saying that because I'm Jewish and I'm trying to attack white people. This is kind of how these, how these people work. Um, <laughs> I've experienced this a number of times. Anytime you say anything like, why don't we try Christianity? They'll say, oh, of course the Jew is going to say that, blah, 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 blah. 
So that's always fun for me. But if you look at, so I think an Orthodox parish is like a perfect microcosm of what America could be. Okay. Yeah. We have all the different groups here, right? Jewish people. There's a, a, a person from Haiti in my parish. There's Arabs, mm-hmm. there's Greeks, there's all kinds of stuff. Okay. There's no Marxism and there's Orthodox Christianity. What's the result? Everyone gets along and no one's having these little fights over whose tribe is, is better or whatever, because we're all the same tribe. Yeah. So, I see no reason why that can't be extrapolated onto bigger and bigger scales. And it's not really a theocracy because no one's forcing anyone to be there or to go to church. But I think we should try that. I think if we made Marxism illegal and promoted Christianity, I think things would make, I think that would make a much bigger difference than any particular political doctrine outside of that little formula. Yeah. I mean, my church is very similar. It's the same way. There's a lot of very different people there, but you know, we all have the same, um, I guess, values uh, and understanding of Christ. And and I think that it makes sense. And I wonder if these people who um, think you're just being subversive by saying that, perhaps they haven't experienced that. Are Do these people go to church? No, you know, they're not Christian I, no. most of the time. There's, some, there's a group called Christian Identity, which tries to... Um, basically promote the idea that Christianity is only for white people. So I get some detractors from that crowd. Um, but the other ones are mostly pagans or degenerates of some stripe or another. Uh, they don't go to church. They're not, they don't strike me as particularly healthy individuals. Uh, study just came out showing that pagans and atheists are the most obese uh, group of people by percentage <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, you know, it's pe- people that are already fundamentally unhealthy and they're trying to, uh, solve their own problems by solving the world's problems outside of them to some extent, I think. Yeah. I think you should try my way. Add Christ, subtract Marx, and I bet things would be a whole lot better. Yeah. And I just think back to how uh, America used to be not that long ago. Um, it, it was like that until, you know, they started agitating for this, um, uh, I don't know how it's just created like a competition between different ethnic groups and for supremacy, um, which is very destructive, obviously. But if there weren't these people at the top orchestrating this stuff, it wouldn't happen. These are all contrived issues. hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, It doesn't have to be that way. No, if you look at history, there's plenty of examples of different races getting along more or less fine without the influence of these agitators and these, professional dividers. So I think there's, I mean, it's not always the case, of course, but it's certainly they live better alongside each other uh, when there's no one telling them to hate each other and fight. Yeah. Um, So uh, I wanted to also touch on your thoughts on Q while we have you, you know? (laughs) Sure. The, the, the vice journalist just got real excited. He just sat up. All right. All right. All right. (laughs) Um, So, I, I've been friends with the main Q promoter named Neon Revolt. I've been friends with this guy for a long time. Believe it or not, How he's long the first person that uh, introduced me to Orthodox Christianity because he's Orthodox. I didn't know that. Well, he hasn't been in the church in a long time, but he's baptismally Orthodox and theologically Orthodox. He was the first one that ever, I didn't know it existed before he said this to me, actually. Wow. I mean, I've read his book. He, uh, he promoted on the Masons and their lies. That's part of the reason why it was a bestseller the first time was because he promoted it on his website. Hmm. I mean, I've known this guy since we both had Facebook, which was years ago. Neither of us has <laughs> Facebook anymore. Um, when Q first started, I was very hopeful that it was real. 
and I think the situation that a lot of people are in, and I really empathize because I've been there myself, because you look around you at this political situation and you just feel so hopeless because you see you're just losing on every single front with no end in sight and no possible hope of it not being that, that way that this Messiah character comes out out of nowhere, promising salvation, right? Political salvation. Trust me, trust my plan. Uh, everything's going to be okay. And it's really tempting to believe that. And I think everyone fundamentally wanted to believe that that was true. Now, this goes back to what I was saying before about how certain desires are not fundamentally wrong. They just have to be pointed in the right direction. What we're looking at here is Christianity without Christ. It's, this is a bad situation. Where's my savior? Well, on the cosmic scale, that's true. The world situation is bad. We live in a fallen world full of sin and temptation and demons. And we do have a savior whose plan I do trust. So Q is kind of like Christianity without Christ, uh, political Christianity, you could say, perhaps secular political Christianity. And as time went on, I started to ask these questions that the Q crowd has still never answered, such as, okay, well, when, when does the good part start? You know, when does a single thing this guy say come true? Uh, and there are still people shilling Q now, even after it's just so blatantly obvious that this was not real from the beginning, right? Um, you know, he's saying, trust the plan, trust Barr, trust Ray, trust Sessions. All these people ended up basically betraying Trump, maybe not Sessions as much as the, as much as the others. Uh, he kept yeah. saying to put your trust in people that turned out to be seditious in some capacity or another. And the Q crowd still kept following him anyway. So it seemed like these people, their, their hope that this was real was so powerful that no amount of disproof could, could convince them that Q was not real. Uh, uh, that doesn't mean that I think everything Q said is wrong, because like I said before, it's always truth mixed with lies. But I discovered uh, after January 6th, Biden's uh, inauguration, people started posting about Operation Trust. Did you see any of the posts about yeah. Operation Trust? Mm -hmm. So then I see, oh, this is a plan that the deep state has been using for a hundred years. Trust the plan. Salvation's right around the corner, uh, meant to pacify people into essentially doing nothing and letting all their rights be taken. And for those people listening who don't know, Operation Trust was a Bolshevik psyop, a psychological operation, where their goal was to get anti-communist dissidents to identify themselves and then do nothing. So they would tell anti-communists, hey, don't worry. We have our guys in the top levels of military and government. We're just waiting for the right time. But when, it, when the time is right, we're going to overthrow the communists and restore the monarchy in Russia. It's the exact same thing Q is doing in America, right? Trust the plan. It's all military precision. We have our guys in the highest tiers of everything. When the plan comes, Trump's going to sweep up the deep state, throw them all in Guantanamo Bay. Obviously, not, nothing like this ever happened. Trump refused to play offense at any point in his, in his four-year presidency. Literally not one single um, Democrat criminal was ever even charged with a crime besides Kevin Kleinsmith, that low-level FBI lawyer. I mean, they caught Epstein, which was good. I'm not saying Trump didn't do anything good, but I'm saying in terms of the deep state, which I do believe exists, whatever you want to call it, and has, has always existed. You know, JFK was talking about this before he was assassinated by them. He did absolutely nothing to stop them or go after them. And the, the amazing thing is there are still people promoting Q, swearing by Q. You know, the date, the goalpost keeps moving, right? Okay, January 6th, that didn't happen. Supreme Court, that didn't happen. Trump's going to be re-inaugurated in March, whatever, that didn't happen. So it's always something different. Uh, and I have to say, I have to give the deep state credit. Brilliant 
and worked flawlessly. Um, when Trump left office, he handed the deep state more centralized power than they've ever had before in this country's history. Um, so they, they pulled it off flawlessly. You know, they had all their media articles attacking it so they could kind of control both sides of the dialectic, right? They say, oh, this, this is evil. It might even be the same guy writing articles against Q that was actually Q in the first place. Who knows? Um, but the short answer is I believed in it with hopeful skepticism and that over time that slowly turned into outright skepticism. And then finally just made me angry, frankly, to see the country, you know, rights being systematically stripped from people and people still saying Trump is in total control. You know, the deep state's in trouble any day now, the storm, the great awakening. It started to make me angry that people were still promoting this. And I started to view promoters of it, um, not Neon, because I know that he believes and he means well. Certain other big accounts yeah. I started to view as outright malicious um, for, for continuing to promote Q. I think that the people that were there from the beginning, some of the earliest people that were there are probably the most skeptical still. Um, and I think that, uh, I think that it, be, when it became, when it started going mainstream, right, you had other people get involved uh, that jumped on the bandwagon and were like grifting off of it a lot. Oh, and then sure. the years, the new agers that were like, I'm, I don't want to name any particular channels, but um, yeah, the new agers. You, you, you want to though, but good. I on want you. to, but good I'm good not going biting your tongue and practicing your death to self right. during Lent. Yes, exactly. Um, but that are promoting like new age stuff about ascending and um, all this other weird stuff. And uh, those channels were very popular. They did not get attacked in the way that we got attacked and they didn't get banned off of every platform. In fact, I would argue that they were boosted and amplified. Um, and so I wonder about that myself. And, you know, I just think that 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 is one of the problems of it is that it's it's being used to bring people to Satan through these new age doctrines uh, on these channels that are promoting it and saying that that's like what this is or you know, saying that like we are the saviors or the U.S. military are the saviors of humanity when clearly that's not true. It's Christ who is saving humanity. So I didn't like the use of that words, some of these um, words that were being used uh, in the post themselves. And so um, I think that because the media attacked it so much, um, people who were following it, they're their um, obvious compulsion is to defend it, you know, but that puts you in a position of like never questioning it. Yeah. And that is not good. You know, I think that a very large echo chamber um, was created around Q. And when I have questioned Trump in Q myself, when I have made what I think are valid critiques, I have been attacked uh, by people who, um, you know, have been listening to me for a while. And it's just like kind of stunning to see yeah. that people will turn on you like that just for questioning things or like making observations. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, like, do I really you know, are these people really, do they really care about me and my message? Or is it just because I'm confirming their bias when I promote just a certain narrative? Yeah, the worst thing is 
So I was a liberal basically for all my life up until my mid to late twenties was where it started to change. I went to a, a UC Santa Barbara for college. I went to a very liberal California school. Um, and when I started to uh, support Trump back in 2015, I'm not exaggerating when I say every single college friend besides one guy for my floor freshman year deleted me from their lives for supporting Trump. Yeah. A few years later, when I was critiquing Trump, all of my new friends that I had gained in the conservative world, now they started turning their back on me too. And I was like, I just can't win here. You know? <laughs> I lose for supporting him. I lose for criticizing him. Maybe I should just shut up and not care anymore. Uh, but I was definitely swept up in that MAGA energy in the beginning. I mean, I don't regret it because I believed I was doing the right thing at the time. I believed in some of the things Trump was saying. I don't. I think I believed in them more than he did, frankly, in retrospect. Um, and then when you start to question Q and Trump, you know, all the shills start going after you. They're like, no, don't leave the plantation. It's the same thing that Democrats do with black people, right? As soon as you start to question things, it's no, 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 come back on the plantation. You must believe what we're telling you. And it's just, it's mind boggling uh, that the, the Q shills are still out there even now. Um, people still believe in it. I understand again, I understand the desire to want this, uh, to want this to happen, but it's really the story of history is everyone's looking for a savior and there's only one real one, right? So you're either putting your faith in, in man or in God. And that was, a, that was a problem with Q's posts. He would say, trust humanity, trust yourself. Well, that's not how Christians work. We don't trust ourselves or humanity. We understand that we're all sinners living in a world of temptation and we're taught to not trust ourselves and our own desires and not trust people's motives, you know, uh, because we see it as fundamentally broken and, and sinful. Right. So when he's saying trust yourself, trust mankind, trust humanity, that's more Luciferian than Christian, even if he is quoting scripture every once in a while. And so I think that pulled a lot of people off the right track. Uh, I know for Neon Revolt, it, it, he kind of replaced orthodoxy with Q and I, I pray for him every night that he comes back to it. Um, he wrote a very uh, elaborate best-selling book on it called Revolution Q that I read at some point. But at the end of the day, if you believe in something and it turns out to not be real, well, you got to change your mind or then know that you're believing in something fake, right? You can't just, there's cognitive dissonance there, or there should be cognitive dissonance there if you're a healthy person, right? If you believe Q was going to fix, fix everything and then nothing got fixed and everything's actually worse now, you know, that should make you question what you believe and what you were reading and what people were telling you. But at the end of the day, you know, I don't want to insult humanity as a whole, but most people are followers, frankly, which is again, not inherently bad. We're supposed to be following Christ and the saints, but most people will follow what other people tell them without critically thinking too much about it. And so that's well, the problem when you have big influential people guiding people in the wrong direction. Yeah. And I think well, that, okay. You well, want to say I mean, something? Yeah. But I mean, ultimately I, I think. Well, you're on mute. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so I, I, ultimately I think the whole premise of, you know, of the, our discussion in the first hour was about iconography and, and putting and putting things up. I, um, I, I happen to understand that the, that that uh, the Trump, that Q and what it was was 100% tied to the Trump administration for better or for worse. Right. I know that for a fact. I am not. I'm, this isn't some kind of a belief thing, and I'm not just trying to cite some sort of you know, 
the, some sort of zero delta and red line circled things of, of, well, of he, some he kind of team. Pictures from not, inside Air Force One, right? Right. Yeah. So I, I'm not, and even that, I'm not even going to call it. I'm talking about my personal research. Hmm. I understand that. So with that being said, I understand what you're talking about as far as putting all faith into something like that, that I, I don't, I, I hope maybe now that they maybe understand that was a mistake that to try to, to push people in that direction. So I don't disagree with you entirely, but I, I do uh, disagree with like, it's that it was some kind of a just fake thing. Well, it, it just because it's uh, connected to the Trump administration, this is the other thing, doesn't necessarily mean that it was um, totally true what, what they were saying that they were going to do. I mean, we don't know why. Or it that was, it was a good, a good a person acting in good faith either. Right. I mean, that's the way that I've been thinking about it. And, you know, I think that the other thing is, is that um, if something's true, it should not fear uh vigorous inquiry so when people get angry about you know people questioning q that have believed it for a long time you can't get angry about that if something is true it's going to be true regardless and it shouldn't you shouldn't fear people trying to disprove it that's what you should always be trying to do is to disprove your own uh, beliefs and ideas and stuff and so my, what i would say to that pinata is <laughs> that doesn't necessarily make it good, regardless of whether if it was connected to the Trump administration. No, I understand. What if they were I, I using absolutely. It I for like a that. marketing I, thing, you know. Right, and that, yeah. yeah, that that's one of my biggest cries for that as well because they use words like all and not and nothing and and absolute terms. Good versus you, evil. You, you, yes, you cannot those type of things. You cannot state that and 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 like with. Uh, it, it's bad faith to use those types of terms. If you've done any kind of engineering, you know that you're supposed to avoid those types of terms at all, you know, at all costs, right? I mean, even in even in law, right, Bridix? You, yeah. you use those very, very rarely and very specifically. So to use that kind of stuff and to lead people on, I think that was uh, was definitely a mistake. Yeah. Well, here, I think this is the most charitable possible view of Q. And I'm not saying I agree with this necessarily, but the most charitable possible view is that Q was real and meant what he said and was hoping that when all the election fraud was revealed, first of all, the Supreme Court would uphold what was obviously correct, which was that there was a massive amount of fraud, and that stemming from that, all the people involved would eventually be charged with crimes and arrested. Maybe you could say that and that he wasn't counting on, or they, if it's a group, he or they wasn't or weren't counting on the fact that all these judges were really just liberal activists and were not even going to hear the merits of the cases. But if that's the case, then Q should come out and post that and say that. He should say, I said nothing would stop what is coming, and the plan was that this would end at the courts, and it didn't work out that way, and we weren't counting on this, and I'm sorry. That's what he should say, if that were true. But since no, I, I agree with that. I think that some clarification because you have a lot of people that get that kind of really that uh, were kind of very very green to this idea of any any kind of awakening. It doesn't matter what it is. Just just getting away from the narrative of whatever, yeah. just and, and got into it. I think some clarification is absolutely needed. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Well, I'll tell yeah, you, well. the moment I realized that it was definitely not real was when he was totally silent during the whole election and its aftermath besides to post that stupid Twisted Sister music video. 
not to say that the song is stupid. I like the song. We're not going to take it. <laughs> but the fact that he would, you know, this is the most serious political thing that's probably ever happened in America or one of them, this election fraud to just post a music video. To me, that seemed like he was mocking his audience and be like, ha ha, gotcha. And then he never said anything else after that. Yeah. That's the part that doesn't make sense. So I agree there. If he is real, then there should be some, some clarification about it. Uh, I don't think he's ever going to post again. I think the operation was complete. You know, he did his job and the deep state has all the power it could possibly want now full spectrum dominance over every aspect of the country, essentially politically, politically and culturally. And so, you know, this is, uh, we've been in terminal decline for probably 70 years to be totally blunt. Right. I don't think any country has ever recovered from the sexual revolution phase. Uh, and the seeds for that started to be planted, I would say, in the 50s. Um, and Stephen Baskerville, in his book, The New Politics of Sex, makes an excellent point that for all the conservative whining about gay marriage, that would never have happened if straight people hadn't already ruined marriage with no-fault divorce and things of that nature. The mm -hmm. institution was already not taken seriously. So why would gay marriage not be next in line if marriage itself was already kind of a joke? So that's right. interesting but I don't think any country's ever recovered from sexual liberation. I haven't seen a reversal of that. So this might have been inevitable in one form or another anyway, like what's happening now where the country's obviously just kind of a joke on the world stage. And even though we have a massive military, I mean, you guys see what's happening to it. It's not going to be, might be massive, but you know, a massive army of pregnant moms and trannies is not going to be a threat to China. Come so uh, I think our time as a superpower is, is very likely over and permanently so. Yeah, I find that very disturbing what's going on with the military. And we know, too, that um, when Biden first came in, he said that he was going to be purging the military of Trump supporters and uh, not just the military, but the National Guard, the Capitol Police as well. Um, yeah. And I want to go back to um, one of the things that we were talking about with Q and not being clear about things like this lack of clarification very well may have led Ashley Babbitt to her death. Mm. Have people thought about that? Like she was a, a Q supporter, Trump mm. supporter, big Q person, and she went and got shot in the neck. And a lot of people yeah. were calling her like Antifa. And I think that's so disrespectful. Well, that whole event, I mean, it seemed to me like Trump kind of led his own people into a trap was what it looked like to me at the time. But then, I mean, he did try to put all those videos about, about go home in peace. And then the internet kept censoring that video. So they could keep right. saying he was in, in, uh, inciting. inciting a riot or an insurrection when he was clearly saying, go home. But he also did say to go there. Um, I, if I had to guess, I would say this whole thing was a, a deep state plan to militarize DC so that after Trump left, I mean, this is a really scary thing to think about. So you're right. The, this purge of uh, patriots from the military combined with the militarization of DC, they're planning on doing something to regular people with that military that normal people in the military would not have agreed to. And there's a reaction they're afraid of that they have to protect themselves behind a fence and thousands of armed guards from that reaction. Something really bad is about to happen that they're going to use the military for maybe on American soil against American citizens. That kind of looks like where it's going. Yes, I agree. So, and um, there was a... This up on purpose. Yeah, there's a um, a guy on Twitter who has a um, family member in the military, and they said they were given their uh, anti-extremism uh, training. And um, one of the things that they were told was like that 
uh, the people that stormed the Capitol were seditious and um, they were the enemy of the army. So kill, so kill the civilians is basically the same. Yes. Yeah. And it yeah. said, well, we still have to protect people like them for now, oh. but that they were the enemy. And then one of them brought up uh, far left extremists in Portland, Antifa, and how they had destroyed a city. And they said, well, we're not, that's not what we want to talk about. Of course. <laughs> so that's not the kind of extremism that they're interested yeah. in. So clearly um, they're planning something. I mean, I'm not saying that I, let me, how do I word this? If I were a more evil person, I would want to work for the deep state because I admire the precision of their strategies, frankly. I mean, they get what they want. Unfortunately, I have a soul and a conscience, so I can't join that team, you know? So I'm trying to surround myself with clever, smart, forward-thinking Christians so that we can build ideally some sort of parallel thing where we're not just kind of dumb sheep that roll over like most conservatives have been for the last 70 years where we, cause you know, the Bible says to be gentle as lamb, but also uh, clever as a snake, right? The clever as the snake part, clever as a serpent. That's what conservatives conservatism has been missing. They don't understand what's happening, what the other team is doing. They have no strategy, no goal, no vision whatsoever. So I'm trying well, what to use, what do you feel about, you know, because, you know, you don't want to get into the whole fall into that trap of the end justifies a means, but no, like, no. but it's, it's a strategic type of things. I think that's a really good way to put it. I haven't heard that, uh, that, uh, is that a colloquialism of some sort? I, I haven't heard that before. You can't do the end justifies the means because in the old Testament, I forget which book, uh, I believe it was a prostitute that brought her money that she'd gotten from clients to the temple and it was completely rejected. Like, I don't want this money. This is blood money. This is sin. Like the God does not want the rewards gotten from dark things. Right. <laughs> but you have to be smart too. Like there's a book called what's it called 50 laws of power or something by Robert green. It's basically like the Prince by Machiavelli for the modern world. Where in the intro, I mean, I can only read so much of that stuff because it's so dark and like degrading to the mind and soul. But he does make the good point that even if you're not going to use this stuff yourself, you should know what the strategies are so you know when someone else is trying to do it to you. You should be able to recognize what ploy someone else is doing so that it won't succeed and you won't lose, basically, you know. Right. Um, it's like knowing what, you know, the ideologies of your enemies so that you know when they're being employed or when, the, you know, what, what strategy you could take. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not saying lie to people and do bad things to get what you want. I'm saying you have to understand, like you just said, you have to understand your enemy's strategy. And on the theological level, you, you know, books like uh, the screw tape letters by CS Lewis, you want to understand that enemy's strategy too. So you understand when you're feeling a certain way or certain images are in your mind, what's happening, who's attacking you and what to do about it. It's the same thing on a physical level, right? Your enemy hates you. There's certain strategies they're going to employ and you cannot defend yourself unless you know what they're doing or else you're just easy prey. And that's what conservatives have been. They've been easy, easy prey, which is why they've lost on every single issue for 70 consecutive years, right? You still have some of your guns. That's the very last thing that conservatives have, have managed to conserve. And that's not going to last very long either. Not, not with what's going on right now. Yeah, I think that's true. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people that don't want to hear depressing things. They just 
they want you to confirm their bias or they want you to tell them what they want to hear because well who wants to be told like this is how bad it really is Uh, it's not comforting um to to have to think about that and to understand like it's not it's probably not going to get better but the Bible tells us this as well. I mean, it's not, you know, and there is comfort in that ultimately. Yeah. No, the, the peace of Christ is, is the peace from above, right? The New Testament says it's not meant to be physical peace, peace around you, peace with, with the world and politics. It's meant to be a peace like uh, the three youths in the fire in the book of Daniel, where everything can be on fire around you, but you're okay because you have the peace of Christ in your heart. That's, that's the peace of Christ. Now that doesn't stop me or other people from wanting the physical comforts too. Of course you want that. But at the end of the day, um, even if you don't have Christ, the peace of Christ, you're not going to be physically effective anyway, in a way that leads to good outcomes anyway, because then you're going to be full of passion and zeal. Whereas being dispassionate, which doesn't mean lack of passions, it means mastery over your passions. Um, that's the best, most stable place from which to observe other things. And yeah, it's not always good. And some people don't want to hear about what's going on because they want to live in La La Land where everything feels better. They want the blissful ignorance. That's fine. But those people should, you know, sit down and, and let the more serious people kind of try and, and help because if they don't want to participate, then they shouldn't. And that's fine. I'm not judging them for it, but there are people who have the constitution um, of their mind, heart, and soul to face the darkness and try to understand it and, and work around it. And those people do have somewhat of a duty, I think, to do their best to help whether other people want to or not. And if you don't want to hear about it, then don't, you know, turn off those podcasts and go, I don't know, watch cartoons or something, whatever it is that makes you feel good. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had, I've seen comments and like live chat of of people saying like, Oh, I don't, I can't hear this right now. I'm going to leave and come back later. Um, or this is too dark. I don't want to hear this. And so I wonder, um, it, I mean, it is heavy stuff, you know, it It is. is Yeah. And some of it can be very disturbing, especially if people have been traumatized before, um, especially some of the things that we cover here on uh, this channel. You know, I I wonder, though, what what is the benefit of going too deeply into some of this? Because sometimes I spend a lot of time (laughs) looking at like horrible things and I feel like, Oh, I'm doing this because I want to know um, like what they're plotting and what they're doing and what their narratives are. But sometimes I feel like perhaps that does um, or maybe it's not necessary to go into like two hours worth of um digging into like horrible trafficking and all this other like really dark stuff i think it's wise to put limits on your own investigation like once you kind of get it to a certain degree and you understand the bigger picture i think it's okay to not ruin your eyes and heart with the particular details specifically around trafficking and stuff with kids and that kind of dark stuff some of it's just there's no reason to expose yourself to what some of that is, you know, there's no benefit. You're not going to help anymore by understanding the exact specifics of what some of these people are up to. The fact that you know what they're up to on a bigger picture, I think is probably sufficient because there is a part where there's like, there's stuff you can't unsee, right? There's stuff that you can't unread if you're exposed to certain particulars, let's say. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's stuff that I, I know I could read, 
that I'm not going to because it's not going to help me or anyone else. And it's just going to depress me that some people are up to things like that. So I think, I mean, discernment is one of the Orthodox Church's highest virtues for a reason, right? For many reasons. I think that's probably one of them. How much of this do I have to know in order to be effective and, you know, go no further, I think makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, I think that uh, after January 6th, Clearly, the FBI is going after regular people. Um, you know, there's like 75 million Trump supporters that they've all just labeled as uh, domestic extremists or whatever. And so we can see that uh, they're up to something um, that's probably not going to be good. And um, I wanted you to comment, if you're comfortable, on how you feel that Trump handled that, because people horribly. have said he did nothing wrong, like his speech no, handled, was not incitement. Horribly. horribly. Um, I think what Trump thought was that his skill in business negotiation was going to transfer over to politics, and it didn't at all. Um, what I saw was him getting outplayed almost constantly, if not constantly. Some of the stuff I liked, like the ending of the critical race theory, was only when he was trying to get reelected. You know, that should have been a day one thing. Um, and I say this as someone who voted for him both times. I don't know if I've ever seen such a poor judge of character in terms of the people he surrounded himself with and some of the personnel decisions he made. Right. Um, like when he found out that, that Chris Ray had had Hunter's laptop for a year and done nothing and then could, did nothing about the situation, did absolutely nothing. He kept Ray, he gave, kept him in his job, right? He kept Bill Barr at his job until the very end. All these traders that he hired, even when he realized they were working against him overtly or doing nothing, he still had them there. Uh, when he kicked out Steve Bannon, that was the worst mistake of his administration, which happened almost right away. When the truth is that MAGA and Trumpism was a Bannon operation from the beginning. You know, when Trump was on Steve Bannon's radio show in 2015, he still believed in immigration. It was Bannon that, that told him, no, that's not what people want. So I don't know how much of it, his own words Trump ever really believed in to begin with in retrospect. Uh, and when he got rid of Bannon and made Jared Kushner his his uh, senior advisor, I mean, it was all downhill from there. Um, in terms of his followers all getting persecuted now, uh, I think that Trump consistently demonstrated a lack of concern for what happened to his own supporters. That's my, yeah, that was some of the, you know, I've, I've been reading stories about people that were just there providing security that are now being uh, arrested. One man who's got three children, one of whom is like three years old is a basically a baby. Um, and they came to his house with a military vehicle with a turret mounted on top. Oh, I saw six, that. Yeah. yeah, six um, FBI vehicles and then three sheriff vehicles and made his wife and kids sit outside for eight hours while they ransacked the house, confiscated laptops, cell phones. This yeah. guy's going to be transferred and held in a prison in Washington, D.C. And it, from what I've seen, he didn't do anything wrong. Shouldn't Trump be speaking up for these people? And then when he does go on Fox News to give an interview, he says, Oh, Melania and I just got the vaccine, and everyone else should do it too. Look, the truth is that Trump would not have won in 2016 um, if not for WikiLeaks, right? 
WikiLeaks exposing the Podesta emails and the bad stuff about Hillary. That's why Hillary lost to a large degree. And Trump never pardoned Julian Assange. I mean, this is the guy who got you elected. And he's still in prison being, you know, looking emaciated and psychologically tortured probably in who knows what number of ways. Um, when he said he was going to make that big pardon, everyone thought it was going to be Assange. And he's like, oh, Susan B. Anthony. Yeah, that's what people care about, right? And then you had uh, him consistently throwing his own supporters under the bus, people that were defending themselves from Antifa that ended up in prison. He did absolutely nothing to help those people ever. So I think that if you, if you were around Trump over the last four years, the best thing that you could have done for yourself was go against him because he was constantly hiring and promoting people who hated him and worked against him and constantly throwing his own supporters under the bus. Now, what that means on a psychological level, I'm, I'm, I mean, I have a degree in psychology, but I'm not going to sit there and like psychologize Trump and what that means for him as a person. But none of, his, none of the people that really believed in him were rewarded for it. And the people that fought him were rewarded for it. And so I, I, there was never any value to supporting Trump beyond whether you believed in what he was saying. Um, so I, I don't think he's going to lift a finger for any of his own supporters who are now getting persecuted. It is funny, though, how the left wanted to defund the police until they were in charge, right? Now all of a sudden they're like, yeah, send the tanks. Get them yeah. the turrets. That'll be cool. Right. Yeah, militarized police, yeah. that's fine. Um, I just, you know, I think that at the very least, he could at least speak up for these people and say not all of them were uh, doing anything wrong. I mean, it wasn't every, not everybody that was there participated in storming the Capitol. And no, so and the police let them into the Capitol anyway. They were, oh, yeah. In. Yeah. They, and I think that there were probably a lot of people who also were pushed forward, right? Um, you know, and didn't really know like what to do. And I unfortunately think that those people are still going to be charged. And um, this is so this is disturbing to me, you know, and I think that, look, there's something to be said that perhaps people like Kushner were um, giving him bad advice, but there's also self-responsibility. And when somebody gives you bad advice, shouldn't you learn that lesson over the course of four years? Right. Yeah. Um, with this consistently recommending people who then turn around and do like the opposite of what they were supposed to do, putting yeah. in Chad yeah. Wolf, right, to DHS. Chad Wolf, the former uh, immigration lobbyist. Yeah. To, to head DHS. That's and the a worst, great the idea. The worst part of that is to have such a cool name. Like, if you have a name like Chad Wolf, <laughs> to be such a soy boy on these topics is really just a crime in and of itself, frankly. Yeah, um, you know I think Trump Trump's main concern has always been, and I have to give credit to the people who tried to tell me this in 2015, which they did, that his main concern is his own well-being and saving his own skin. And people tried to warn me, and I say, you don't know what you're talking about. He's going to make America great again. And some of their criticisms were right. Obviously, the Russiagate stuff was not true, and half the other things he was accused of were not true. Um, but Trump never went after the people that were attacking him. He refused to play offense, and that is simply not how you win. The left is pure offense. They never right. defend themselves. When you, when you criticize them, they just come up with three new attacks against you. And Trump never learned from this. He never stopped playing defense. You know, Every week, it was a new scandal that he had to waste millions of dollars of taxpayer money on show trials and this and that, proving the left's accusations wrong. 
why don't you just say, look, these people are liars and I'm going to find a crime to charge them with and put them in jail instead. And I think that that perhaps people like Jared Kushner were telling him no. And I have to wonder because like I've read that it was Ivanka crying that got him to do the first serious strike. She crying about the so-called chemical weapons, which we've learned that was a lie. But so she clearly had an influence on her father. And um, I do wonder if, if they kind of told him like, oh, you know, the next term uh, after we win re-election and we don't have to worry about winning re-election again, then we can go after these people. I don't know, because there's an argument to be made that he lost a lot of money uh, doing what he did, and now he's banned everywhere. His brand is suffering. So people say, okay, what what did he actually gain then? He clearly went out on a limb in in a way to try to do this, and maybe he did. You know, perhaps he did. And I think it's a, you know, like you're saying, a charitable way of viewing the situation. But many people warned about Jared Kushner and Ivanka. These are New York liberals who had taken money from George Soros, partied uh, on his yachts and stuff. Um, Maybe they're not the best people that should be advising you. Then there was the 2020 campaign itself. Um, and the way that that was run, and it was primarily run by Jared Kushner, and he, um, you know, he's funneled half a billion dollars into five different shell companies, and then paid his family with them. And so this was one of the biggest campaign finance scandals um, in recent history. And uh, again, these were people, Trump supporters are not wealthy. They're like working class people. So that's their five, 10, $20 donations. That's a lot for them, for Jared Kushner to steal. Yeah. That just makes me sick. And I'll never, I'll never forget when he said something like, who else are they going to vote for? When people were kind of questioning him about following through on certain uh, promises, right? He said like, oh, well, who else are they going to vote for? Well, that's his liberal showing. That's his liberalness. That's, that's, that's the yeah. same kind of thing. It's like the contempt <laughs> and arrogance. Right. Yeah. Who else are the, it's like, it's like the Democrats saying, who else are the black people going to vote for? Yeah. You ain't, yeah. If you don't vote for Biden, you ain't black. Exactly. So and then most of them voted for him anyway. Yes. So, you know, yeah, his arrogance, uh, I guess, was justified because you can say something like that and they still vote for you. It's a complex situation. But, yeah, I think the charitable view of Trump is that he got in way over his head, had no idea what he was doing and just consistently made bad personnel decisions and doesn't know who to trust. And that's the charitable view. Right. I don't think he was controlled opposition the whole time, like some people have suggested. I think incompetence is probably a better explanation than deliberate malice. Uh, incompetence and um, self-preservation is probably the, the real explanation for the Trump phenomenon. And I've heard things like he's going to run again in 2024. I'm not, gonna, I'm not ever voting for this guy again. I'm probably never voting again, period. I mean, if you have four years to show me why you deserve more, you know, and then you don't do a great job, and then the election was very obviously stolen. I, I of course, believe that he won in 2020. Oh yeah, I think so. Both two brain cells rubbed together do, or more than two brain cells rubbed together. But he didn't do anything at any point in those first four years to prevent a situation like this from happening, right? Well, there was supposed to be a commission that was supposed to look into the voter fraud 
when he first came in. Um, they were supposed to uh, go look at all this stuff. I forget what it was called, but that commission in their report never came out. Uh, it was disbanded. And then after the 2018, the midterms, where they were doing a lot of the stuff that they did in 2020 with redistricting uh, and things like this, there was, again, supposed to be some kind of report that we were going to get about voter fraud from DHS that never came out. Nothing ever came of like this. Like the Durham report with the uh, FISA gate, which still we have no idea. And that, that's another example. So this was a big part of Q, right? The Durham report, John Durham. And Trump put all of his hope for catching these people into someone that he's never met. He said he never met John Durham, never had a conversation with him in his life. He put all of his hopes and dreams on someone he had no idea who the guy was. This is the kind of shockingly bad decision that I, that I mean. Um, just consistently over time. So on some level, I, I'm not saying I'm grateful that this situation has played out the way it has, because obviously the country is going downhill fast. But it certainly helped me spiritually because I'm not going to put my hope. I never put my hope in a politician before. I got sucked into the Trump energy and it was a mistake. And I'm never going to make that mistake again of trusting in princes and kings, like the Psalms say, right? Put not your trust in princes and kings because at the end of the day, they die like everyone else and their plans come to nothing. It's a paraphrase. So I had to be reminded of that. And I think the way this has all played out has helped edify me away from hoping in secular solutions to problems that have always been going on, right? And, um, and will always go on until, until the end of time, frankly. And that's a big part of, to bring this up for the third time again, the city of God by St. Augustine, where <laughs> this is when the Roman Western half of the Roman Empire is collapsing. And he's dealing with a lot of angry people saying, well, why, why would God allow something like this to happen? You know, is maybe if we'd stuck with the old Roman gods, this wouldn't have happened. And in the first book, he points out, you had your old Roman gods for a long time. There were just as many famines and earthquakes and diseases as war and wars. So, I mean, this is, these are just things that happened to the world. It's one of the many arguments he makes. And that's just the state of the world as that it's chaotic. It's crazy. Countries rise and fall, you know, America actually collapsed really quickly in the grand scope of things. If you look at it, you know, a country that lasts barely 200 years is not particularly impressive. Um, if you look at it, like how long the Roman empire lasted and things of that nature, but it is what it is. And all we can do is pray and try to achieve salvation for ourselves and those around us. I really don't think there's much more we can do than that. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and I also think that there's something uh, to be said for, you know, suffering. Um, it's not like, what do you really benefit from having things very pleasant for you um, yeah. and very easy? You don't really grow spiritually. Um, there is uh, some benefit to suffering. Yeah, if, if you are going about it the right way, you know, suffering for its own sake is not virtuous. Um, but to bring it up for a fourth time in city of God, Augustine points out, can I read a passage actually? Yeah. That I was just reading today and I underline because people, you know, the problem of evil in philosophy is often, uh, mocked in meme form with the phrase, if God good, why bad thing happen? Right. That's kind of the argument. How could God allow suffering and evil? And so he says the wicked under pressure of affliction, execrate God and blaspheme. The good in the same affliction offer up prayers and praises. This shows that what matters is the nature of the sufferer, not the nature of the sufferings. 
Stir a cesspit and a foul stench arises. Stir a perfume and a delightful fragrance ascends. But the movement is identical. So what he's saying is, it's not that God is just causing suffering left and right, and this is a horrible thing. It's that if you are the right kind of person, the pressure that suffering causes to you leads you closer to God. It's only the people that are godless that suffering actually destroys. So I think that is the best way to view what's going on is it should lead you towards God and help you break your ties to the material world and its success or lack thereof, the glory of your country, which of course we all, we all want a happy, successful country, but given that that's not what we have, you know, what, what attitude will most benefit us and the people around us? I think it's that the, the suffering should increase our virtue, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And I, I also, um, you know, I think about people thinking that like our situation is hopeless right now. Um, and I don't think that's true. I think that COVID and the lockdowns and stuff have demoralized a lot of people. But I also think a lot of people who did not, um, that didn't really care about what was going on. Now they do. Now that it's, um, it's affecting them personally. Uh, now they're starting to care um, because, you know, when people are busy, when they're working every day and taking care of their family, a lot of times they don't really care about some of this stuff as, as long as it isn't personally affecting them. Yeah. And so clearly people are losing their small businesses and people haven't been able to work in a very long time. There are people right now who are, are waiting in 10 hour lines at food banks and stuff because they're losing everything. People who are facing uh, eviction and foreclosure on their homes. And I don't think that's a good thing uh, clearly, but I also think that because of that, people are starting to understand that the situation here isn't good and that that response was evil. Yeah. And the virus, or I should say the policies that have resulted from quote, the virus end quote, uh, if you really look at what it's taken away from the world, it was really mostly distractions anyway. Like, okay, you can't go to the bar or the club anymore. Okay, well, if you're a Christian, what, what loss has that brought to your life? And if you try to look at it that way, like it's taking my distractions away. I can't go to the mall. I can't go to the movies. Now I have more time for prayer. Of course, this is a very difficult and heavy way of looking at it. Very difficult. But I think that's the most edifying uh, perspective you can take is to always, in any situation, ask, what approach can I take to this that will lead me closer to God? Because sometimes there's nothing more you can do. And if you read the stories of different saints and martyrs, you know, being physically tortured, I mean, it's been so much worse than this for so many people throughout time. And it never stopped people from being saved, right? There's no situation that's so bad that you can't be saved and edified through it. And uh, this is our, for now, this is our cross. And it's probably going to get worse, at least in the short term. And the heavier the cross gets, the stronger we'll get if we're facing it with the proper attitude. And I mean, is there really anything else in life worth doing as much as cleaning your soul and repenting and purifying yourself and getting ready for heaven? I don't think so. So as tough as it is, excuse me, this is the, the training in the Christian life, you know, 
It's not to look around and get depressed about how bad things are. It's to remember that your life was always just the blink of an eye anyway. You know, you're here today and gone tomorrow. The world's going to go on without you either way. And the, the concern is really what's going to happen to your soul afterwards. And of course, you try to, do the, try to do as much good as you can for the people around you. I'm not saying to just neglect the world because that's not what we're called to do, I don't think. In the world, but not of it and, and so on. But seriously, look at the whole grand scope of things. And we're alive for you know, 80 years if we're lucky. A lot of people don't even make it to 40 or 50 anymore. Yeah, that's true. Um, I just found out yesterday a very famous mixed martial arts fighter named Kimbo Slice died in his 40s. I don't, oh, know. Wow. I don't know where he died. Yeah, he was on a steroid called DECA that keeps killing all these athletes very young. That's just incredibly toxic to your blood vessels. They didn't know back, you know, when they were taking this 20 years ago, they didn't know what it was doing it can do to people. That's sad. So all we can do is just be grateful for each day that God gives us and, and try our best to make the best and most useful use of it, right? Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. So that said, I've, I've got a couple minutes left if you have any uh, last questions or topics. Uh, before I got to run here. No, um, we're actually at the top of the hour anyway. So I'm going to be passing over my show very soon. Uh, I just wanted to thank you for coming on. And um, I think that uh, I heard you tell your story about the lady who gave you the Bible and wrote that message in there for you. I thought that was really nice um, and really cool. And I think that um, I hope that you continue to do your channel and stuff, because I think that you really are uh, on a path that God put you on for a reason. And I hope that you stay on that path and uh, continue the the narrow path. I really appreciate that. I also hope that I stay on the narrow path. You know, some days I feel like I'm still at day one. Uh, In fact, St. Anthony the Great had a famous quote. This was a guy who wandered off into the desert by himself for 20 years to fight demons. He said, every day I say to myself, today I will begin. And it often feels that way. Uh, But yeah, that story, you saw me probably tearing up as I told it. Um, I think there will come a day, I was thinking about this yesterday, I think there will come a day where for my own salvation, I'm going to have to delete my presence from the internet and and not get the validation of having subscribers and followers and readers and all that. Because at some point, I think that's going to hinder my spiritual growth. Uh, It's not today. It's not tomorrow. So I'll be around for a while. But I realize that I'm going to have to do that as a a ascetical feat of exile at some point. But I appreciate um, your um, affirmation of uh, the work that I'm doing. I appreciate that greatly. Thank you for having me on the channel. I've really enjoyed the discussion. I was actually not planning on being here for more than an hour, but I thought (laughs) it was really productive and and fun. Um, So yeah, thank you for the invitation. Um, and to the uh, pinata guy uh, for contributing as well. Um, and yeah, I'm sure I'm sure we'll chat more later. And um, yeah, just thank you. This was a, hopefully the listeners have been edified by our conversation. Maybe the journalists uh, writing their hit pieces have even had inspiration to turn their lives over to God. You know, we can always pray for that as well. Yeah, <laughs> we can hope. <laughs> we can hope and pray. It's all we can do. Yeah. Right? Yep. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. All right. For sure. Take it easy. Bye. Bye. All right, guys, we're at the top of the hour. We're going to be passing it off to uh, Coach Clay and I-70. Um, just real quick so everybody knows, um, Michael, uh, his channel is called Brother Augustine. You can find him on YouTube. Um, and li- listen, just because somebody has a different opinion than you does not make them a bad person. 
um, we have to get past this, like, uh, this idea that like everybody that you're, that you talk to or are friends with have to believe the same things that you do. That's not true. Um, and it's what you're doing is limiting yourself by expecting people to all think the same way that you do. You could are potentially like, you know, not being friends with somebody that might be a really good person and a really good friend. So I just want to um, put that out there because I saw some of your comments in live chat. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I, when I was pushing back against, you know, I, I was not necessarily defending you know, my own belief, what I was trying to do was, was, uh, explain my position so that we could have a discussion about it. Yeah. But, and, and it wasn't about like trying to be right. Right. That right. And, the, you know, and that's, that's the healthy thing. And that's, and that's what I think you're after, right? You're after yeah. healthy discussion, but at some point you do have to like, your position when you're, having... you're cutting out a bit. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Sorry. You, have, <laughs> you know, you have to have, you, you know, you have to present your argument when you're having a discussion. And I know those are very harsh words for people on the left that don't understand that you can have when people have an argument that doesn't necessarily mean yelling. So an argument and, and discussion um, are, are very, very almost, they're not, they're not equal, but they're, they're very close than what, uh, the mainstream media has made them yeah. out. And you always want to have um, different points of view, right? And, and multiple points of view being considered. Uh, you never want to get into the uh, position where like you're only thinking one thing or you're in an echo chamber because that is the point where you can be manipulated. You can be nudged, right? If if the powers that be know, okay, this is what you believe and you strongly believe it, they know they can manipulate you based on um, like confirmation bias. And we talked about this, you know, of being in an echo chamber, you don't, that's not healthy and it's not good. It is good to talk to people who have different opinions than you and believe different things. That is always helpful. I think it's always beneficial. And I also think you always kind of learn something from these discussions, you know, you always come away with, oh, maybe I didn't know that. Maybe I learned something that I wouldn't have known if I didn't have that conversation. So anyways, that's all I'll say. And you know what? You know, people can be, um, people need to learn to be respectful of other people that have a different opinion. I, I never want to see some of the disrespectful comments I saw in live chat ever again. And I hope that people understand why I'm saying that. You know, it's this channel is a privilege. It's not your right to be here. I don't have to do this. I do it because I want to and at great personal cost to myself. So I don't think I deserve to be disrespectful.